I'm glad to see you today. I'm glad you're out today. You may notice that I'm speaking a little bit more like Johnny Cash. And that's because I've been fighting a really bad uh, head and chest cold. And so I ask you to bear with me in that uh, today, uh, and hopefully the Lord will allow me to regain control and not go into a coughing fit right in front of you. You know, what a beautiful little course we ended our worship with uh, today. I exalt thee. And, you know, that, that's really the motivation behind the series that we're currently in. It's getting increasingly more difficult to exalt God in every area of our life because every day we're colliding with our culture around us. And and that culture is a very persuasive, powerful force in our life. And, And there are so many different outlets of culture that are beckoning us to follow it and to drift further and further away from what God's Word has revealed about how God wants us to live and who God wants us to be. And so we have to make a conscientious decision every day as we collide with culture to keep our focus back on God's Word and on God Himself and the cross of Jesus Christ. And so it's going to take effort on our part. And it's going to cost life to get messy as we've discovered so far in our series Last week we talked about how culture collides with our family. And especially with what God has designed as the biblical family. And I called last week's message the blur factor. Because I think in general, where culture has collided with the biblical description of family, is that it's blurred it. Today we, we really hardly understand what a family looks like. It's blurred its identity. It's blurred the role models that men and women and children are supposed to play in the family. It's, it's blurred our parenting skills. Who really is parenting our children? It's blurred boundaries because no longer is the home just a, a haven for family. Now the home has become an extension of the workplace. And so it's really blurred the whole idea of the biblical family. And it's causing a lot of chaos in our family life. Now, we ended last week with this question. How do we bring the family, the biblical family, back into focus? And that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to give you six ways that we can begin to clear up that blurred image. Now, I'm going to be speaking primarily to parents today. But understand that if you're not a parent, or if you've already raised your children, then you may fall in a category like myself as a grandparent. And understand that children need Christian influence. Now, specifically in the home. But sometimes a child be a part of a home that is not biblically based, and so therefore a grandparent may need to take the role of being the leader, the biblical leader in that family, or maybe an aunt, an uncle, or just a friend. And so what we're going to talk about today really pertains to us all as we try to help our families become stronger. Again, the focal point is... What God says about family, what God says about marriage, what God says about children and their relationship with parents, what God says about the the immediate and the extended family. We are trying to pattern our lives and we're trying to embrace what the Bible says that God wants us to do. Culture continually, every day, is trying to draw us away from that and that's where we feel this collision. So what do we need to do 
to make our families stronger. What do we need to do to return to that orthodox biblical worldview? The first thing we need to do is we need to re-engage. We've got to get back to business. We've, we've got to re-engage. We need to re-engage God's word. <coughs> if it's God's image and God's description and God's ideal for what family looks like, then we need to understand what that is and where we find that is in studying God's word. We need to re-engage each other as couples. We need to quit fighting. We need to quit bickering. We need, we need to quit drifting apart and pursuing our own interests. And we need to get back together and work as a team so that our children can see that team spirit and can see what a model Christian family is about. Uh, husbands and wives, we need to, to reassume the biblical roles that God has given us. Husbands, we need to love our wives sacrificially. We need to put them above us and we need to love them in such a way that makes them feel loved by us. Wives, we need to respect our husbands because that's what they need. That's what God has hardwired them to need. And so we need to, to assume and we need to embrace those biblical roles. We need to re-engage our kids. Life has got us so busy that oftentimes our kids are an afterthought, not the primary focus of what we're doing in life. A great source that I want to recommend to you as you take on this postmodern culture as a parent is this book, Authentic Parenting in a Postmodern Culture. Authentic Parenting in a Postmodern Culture. It's by Mary DeMuth. And Mary lists a lot of really great ideas about how we can effectively parent as Christians uh, in this postmodern culture. But in this idea, and she doesn't call it reconnect, but along the same line, she she asks some questions that help us to think about reconnecting. What does that look like? What does reconnecting look like? Well, she asks this question, resolve. How have I resolved to connect with my children this year? Have I changed the way I approach my children since last year? Why or why not? What's the question? How have I resolved to connect with my children this year? Instead of just kind of letting them get caught up in the whirlwind that I call my life, how am I going to purposely connect with the child? Am I connecting with them differently this year than I did the year before? Am I progressing in my influence with my children? Why or why not? She asked the idea of intentionality. How have I been intentional with each of my children? How have I tailored my words to each child this week? See, again, even Christian parents, sometimes we take the shotgun approach to Christianity in our homes and just kind of blast it out there hoping that it'll have the same effect on all the children. It's not going to work that way. Because any of us who have had multiple children are amazed that the children can possibly have come from the same womb. Because they're so different, aren't they? Well, that means they need a different approach. They need a different language. They may need a message delivered with a different sensitivity. And so we're asking ourselves how intentional are we with each one of our children so that we reach out to him or to her through the language that they will understand? How resolute are we? Have I resolved this year to pursue the soul of each child? What prevents me from doing that? Again, our, our, our responsibility as parents, biblically, is not just academic, it's not mental, it's not just emotionally, it's spiritually. How have I resolved that I'm going to reach out and touch and be a part of forming the soul of my child. How fixed am I? Have I become so busy that I've not fixed my schedule to meet the needs of my children? We talked about that a little bit last week. Am I interruptible? Or do the kids like, they know better than interrupt me. They don't even want to come around me. They don't want to dare interrupt what I'm doing because they know what's going to come their way. 
Do I fully fix my attention on my children when they're in the room? Are they an afterthought? We're trying to get them pacified, trying to get them busy with something. Do they perceive that they hold a position of priority in our family, in our life, in our relationship with them? See, we need to reconnect on a more strategic and a more intimate level. This is what we're trying to avoid that we saw last week. This is where so many children live, and even Christian children. They live in this world where there's so many sources of influence around them that they don't know who to listen to anymore. They've got, yeah, they've got the parents, but their parents are so busy doing things that there's not a lot of interaction there. And then they've got their school teacher, and they've got the daycare workers, and they've got their friends, and they've got the coaches. And, and, and then half the time when we get them home, we, we put them in front of the television to pacify them while we're getting other things done. And, and the media then is, is infusing values into them. Children don't even know who to listen to anymore. See, in re-engaging, what we want to do is we want to minimize all those other sources of influence. And instead, give our children the desire and the confidence to look to us primarily as their role models. To us for helping them to fix their life compass and to set their life course. That's what reconnecting is all about. Then we need to wake up. We've got to wake up the postmodernism. I love this motivational poster. It has a polar bear laying over the edge of sleep, just about ready to roll into the water. And the caption says, most people sleepwalk through life. Wake up. And how true of that is our, uh, of our lives? So many of us fall into routine, and we're just living a routine. Yesterday's the same as, as today, it's the same as tomorrow, and the same as last week, last month, last year, and we're just stuck in this rut. And basically, we're sleepwalking through life. We're not making any intentional plans. We're not living life with any intentional person or purpose. We're just reacting to life. And so many of us find ourselves in that area. That's what culture will do to us. We need to, to be careful not to fall into that pattern. Now, here's some don'ts when you start facing postmodernism culture. Don't insulate from it with your children. And I guess I should say over-insulate, because we do want to make sure that we put some boundaries around them and protect them. But don't go to the extreme to where we just try to escape from the world, escape from culture and not allow them to even understand there's a problem out there. I mean, totally minimize everything they do, everywhere they go, everything they see, everything they hear. And we just try to put them in this little Christian cocoon, and, and so they're really protected. Well, the problem with that is, is they can't live in that cocoon the rest of their life. And if we don't teach them, and if we don't prepare them to face the culture that they're ultimately going to face when they finally grow up and leave the home, they're going to be defenseless, and they are going to become victims of the culture that is just going to bombard them. We also have to be careful not to attack and demonize it. Don't just get on a soapbox as a Christian parent and wave the word of God around and say, it's evil, and he's evil, and she's evil, and that's evil, and it's all evil, and the devil. That's not going to be productive because then you're playing right in the culture's hand. Because what makes pluralism... One of the chief characteristics of postmodernism so powerful is this whole idea that it is a reaction to the modern day uh, philosophy uh, that, that preceded postmodernism of all these different groups competing and condescendingly attacking each other, political groups and, and, and uh, religious groups. And, and, and young people just got sick of hearing all the fighting. 
And so postmodernism then gave them this new arena of life where, well, you know, we don't need to fight because everyone's perspective is equal. Everyone's perspective is equally valid. And let's not fight. I recognize that you, you live life the way you want to, and I live the life the way, and let's just get along. And so when we attack and demonize all this as Christian parents, what we're really doing is pushing them towards that philosophy. Now, we also can't do the opposite thing, and that is ignore it. And that's what a lot of Christian parents do. It's the, the ostrich with their head in the sand. Well, maybe if I just take them to, to Awana, and maybe if I just get the kids in the, in, in the church, and maybe if I just make them go to the youth group and, and all that, then it'll all be okay. It'll all just pass. No, it's not going to happen that way. We've got to wake up, and we've got to understand that we've got to get aggressive with this, and we have to be intentional with this. And, and for goodness sakes, don't embrace the culture. Don't be one of these Christian parents, and there are some out there that do that and say, that, you know, that just go right along with the flow. Well, you are absolutely condemning your child to being a victim of contemporary culture and losing their course from that biblical worldview if you embrace it. You've got to confront it head on. Now, in confronting it, you also not only need to wake up, you need to wise up. You need to recognize what this culture is all about so you understand how to navigate around it with a biblical worldview. Right from the top, you need to understand that postmodernism is all about the abandonment of truth. There is no truth anymore. In fact, truth cannot be known, and those who claim to know truth, according to postmodernists, are either lying or they're fools. Now, so therefore, when you just come back at your children with, because God's word says so, because I said so, and you come back with this very strong, aggressive mes- message of absolute truth, and you're on the soapbox demonizing and attacking, again, you're driving your children towards postmodernism. Because all the other voices that they're hearing from these other sources are saying just the opposite. They're saying, your parents are fools. Your parents are lying to you. There is no absolute truth. And so we know there is, but we have to develop a strategy to instill that in our children that is beyond just reactionary and emotional. It has to be logical, and it has to be persuasive. We're up against pluralism. And again, what is pluralism? It's this idea that, that any path in life is an appropriate path. It's a relative path. Lady Gaga put out a hit, and I'm not a Lady Gaga fan by any stretch of the imagination, but a song that says everyone is on the right track. And that's basically postmodernism. It doesn't matter what track you're on. Everyone is on the right track. We're all on the right track. Let's just all celebrate every, each other's track. Now, we know that can't be true because the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to what? Death. It's not true. Now, that is reinforced by uncompromising tolerance. Tolerance is not just the idea that, okay, I tolerate the fact that you have a different opinion than I do. No, no, no. Tolerance goes far beyond that, as we've already discussed. It says, you must validate my position. I must validate your position. They're equally valid. They're equally true. They're equally valuable in living out life. Now, that's really dangerous, isn't it? Because it's not true. But here's the idea behind it. Here's what makes it so powerful, is that they've switched the whole language of culture around to this, that if I don't absolutely value 
and, and give credibility to your life values and morality and, and, and whatever lifestyle you want to live, what I am actually doing is rejecting you. Now, is that true? Absolutely not. I can reject someone's philosophy, someone's value system without rejecting that person. But pluralism and tolerance has created this culture where they're synonymous. And so if you challenge somebody's belief system, you are rejecting them. And in this culture today, one of the the, the chief values that everyone is looking for and pursuing is mutual acceptance. So when you're challenging your child to question and to challenge another person's belief system, in their mind, you're telling them to reject that person. So you've got to know that that's what they're thinking and that's what they're being taught. So you know how to counter that thought with, no, we're not rejecting the person. We're challenging the thought. We're challenging the lifestyle. We'll love and we'll embrace the person. You've got to understand that you are under intentional indoctrination. This, this whole postmodern thing is not something that just has simply evolved out of the mist. This is an intentional strategy to change the minds of the way people think and how we relate to each other, and it definitely impacts our family. Very aggressive forces out there trying to indoctrinate you and especially trying to indoctrinate your children. One of those sources was a guy named Richard Rorty, who was a former professor and philosopher at Stanford University. And he represents, and it's not represents, thousands of postmodernist philosophers and professors. He says this, A talent for speaking differently rather than for arguing well is the chief instrument of cultural change, or the chief instrument of postmodernism. He said it's not about how to argue well, it's just how to adopt a different way of talking about things. Now, do you see the danger inherent in that? He's saying it's not about arguing. Why? Because there's no absolute truth. There's nothing to argue about. Whatever you hold is true for you. Whatever I hold is true for me. So why are we arguing? There's nothing to argue about. Let's just learn to talk about things differently so that we can mutually accept each other's position and mutually embrace each other's position. He said it's the vocabulary which must be addressed. The method is to redescribe things in new ways until you have created a pattern of linguistic behavior which will tempt the rising generation to adopt it. In other words, let's phrase all this in such a way that sounds so good and seems so fair and so sensitive and so loving that the rising generation will just buy into it. See, it's a strategic measure to do exactly that. Now, for you who are Christian parents, understand that you're in the way of this strategy. He goes on to say, when we American college teachers encounter religious fundamentalists, who are they talking about, your kids, we do our best to convince these students of the benefits of secularization. He goes on to say, I think these students are lucky to find themselves under people like me and to have escaped the grip of their frightening, vicious, dangerous parents. Now, you've got to understand that you are up against some very strategic, aggressive, intentional people who want to indoctrinate your children and your grandchildren to an entire new way of thinking about life and about values and about morality and especially about religion. They need to be rescued from you crazies out there. Also need to understand that they are being more successful than we are right now. And what we are experiencing is a mass exodus. 
of children reaching their 18th birthday who were raised in Christian churches who are leaving the faith and not continuing to practice it into their 20s. A mass exodus. In fact, a recent Barna poll, and Barna is a group like the Gallup who does all these polls, but Barna kind of focuses on the religious climate of America. And a recent poll revealed that only 20% of teenagers who are very active in the youth group of a church, like Florida Bible Church, only 20% will continue to be active in the faith into their 20s. You know what that means? That means 80% won't. That means that we're losing 80% of our young people to the postmodern worldview. Instead of embracing the biblical worldview, they're voting with their feet. And so we got to know what we're up against here. We, we, again, we got to wake up. we got to wise up. We can't just kind of coast through life thinking this is all going to be okay. Because it's not going to be okay if we don't take some very intentional steps. You also got to get real. You got to get real about your faith. If you really want your children and your grandchildren to embrace a biblical worldview of life. Got to get real. This whole kind of thing is do as I say, not as I do, isn't going to work anymore. Because I'll tell you, one of the characteristics of the millennial generation, of Generation Y, that's growing up now and who are becoming young adults and going out into the workforce and and graduating from college and, and all that, is that they can sniff out hypocrisy like a bloodhound. In fact, that is one of the major reasons for the mass exodus that we just talked about. As they've done polls of, of these 20-somethings who are no longer practicing their faith, one of the reasons that, that is a consistent trend that they have left the faith is the hypocrisy of their parents and the hypocrisy of their churches. And they don't want anything to do with it. They want authentic, they want sincere, they want genuine. And so they're going to reject anything that they perceive as hypocritical. Dr. Rob Renau, who of Visioning Parenting, says this, Comparatively speaking, very few Christian young people today ever see a mother or father open up God's word, read it, and believe it with all their heart, and then what? Live it out. That's becoming a rarity. Very few of them actually see mom and dad actually at home reading the Bible and then believing it and living it out. He goes on to say this, I have a lot of compassion for young people who say my church was squishy and wishy-washy and hypocritical. Because you ask your congregation, how many of you believe the Bible is the word of God? Well, everybody's hand goes up. Then you ask, how many of you believe the Bible is completely true? Oh, yes, pastor, everybody's hand goes up. And then you go on and you say, well, how many of you are willing to submit your thoughts on every subject to what it says? And then some of the hands start coming down, about half. Then it goes on to say, how many of you are willing to do what it says, even if you don't want to do it? Now you've got about a quarter of the hands up. See, that's what they're seeing. They're seeing a new breed of Christian that says, yeah, I believe in God, but you know what? Mm, I'm going to be selective in what I believe about what the Bible teaches. That's what's happening, and that's why we're having this mass exodus. Family Matters blog. If we want our kids to value spiritual wisdom in a pluralistic culture, then we need to get real ourselves. If we want our kids to be generous, compassionate, biblically grounded, joyful, then we must show them all of these things in our own life. If we want our sons and daughters to know and follow Christ, then we must do the same and do it how? 
joyfully. See, we need to communicate to them that the Christian life is the greatest life in the world to live. And we don't live it out of obligation. And we don't live it out of compulsion. And we don't live it out of some phony sense of trying to, to please God because we've already pleased Him to the point that He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. See, we've got to live it. We've got to get real. And we've got to go deeper. We've got to go deeper into God's Word. I was driving down the street this week, and Stella called me, and she says, you've got to turn the radio on and, and listen to Family Life Today. And they were interviewing a couple young Christian psychologists and, and Christian pastors and, and that, and one of them was a guy named Dr. Jeremy Lellick, who is the founder of the Association of Biblical Counselors. And talking about this same line of trying to prepare our children to embrace a, a biblical worldview, he says this, Parents must be willing to engage their children with deeper truths of the Bible. Fifty years ago, when modernism prevailed, children were being raised in a society that at least acknowledged the reality of objective truth. During this time, simple Bible stories served as a powerful tool to provide a biblical foundation for living. In other words, he says, in the day most of us were brought up, those of us who were like baby boomers and Generation X and even traditional uh, generation, we, we were raised in an era where at least society and culture recognized that there was some standard of truth. Now, they, they may have had different ways of identifying what that standard was, and they always certainly would not embrace the fact that it was God. But we all recognize that, yes, truth is knowable. Yes, there is a standard for truth. And so in those days, simple Bible stories, Noah in the Ark and the creation story and Davy and Goliath and all these little biblical stories. Remember, we used to go to Sunday school. Those who were raised in church and they had flannel graph, and they'd put, we'd go up and get to put the thing up, and it was so exciting. And we would take these biblical stories, and we would readily accept the values that came with them. That doesn't work anymore. He goes on to say, conversely, in the postmodern era, beginning and ending with Bible stories is not enough. Children need to be engaged with Scripture at a much deeper level so that a firm foundation and worldview may be established as it relates to the tenets of the Christian faith. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying, Mom, Dad, Grandma, Grandpa, Aunt, Uncle, Friend of Children you got to go a whole lot deeper into God's Word if you really are serious about helping the children in your life embrace, understand, and want to live a biblical worldview. Otherwise, trust me, they're going to get sucked right along with the flow of culture. He concludes by saying this. By the time a child enters kindergarten, now how old are they in kindergarten? Five, maybe six. He or she should have had significant exposure by who? Parents, not simply Sunday school workers or Awana club leaders, to biblical themes such as the fall, sin, faith, the divinity of Jesus Christ, salvation, sanctification, the Ten Commandments, worship, prayer, and baptism, just to name a few, he says. The most effective way of fostering such a process is to begin tackling the larger questions of life when they are very young. See, a lot of us are thinking, well, you know, yeah, when my kids get to be 12, when they get to be 13, they can start understanding things of the Bible and that. Then we'll start talking about these things. You're, it's too late in too many cases. They've already been bombarded in kindergarten by postmodernism. They've already got all these sources. They've already got these ideas in their heads. We've got to address it earlier, and we've got to address it deeper right from the beginning. Let me give you another resource if you're a parent or a grandparent. Another great book is called World Proofing Your Kids by Lael Arrington. 
This book helps you to understand how to do what we just talked about. How, how to go beyond the surface of just simple Bible stories and begin to get deeper and, and interact with children in a way that causes them to think more. Ask such questions and helps you to, to biblically answer the questions like, who makes the rules? How do we know what is true? Where did we come from? What are we supposed to be doing here? Where are we going? See, these are really deep questions that don't have a surface answer to them. But you can begin to use them, and this book will help teach you how to use them in such a way that stimulates your child's thinking and helps them to understand the answers from a biblical worldview. Now, as your children get older, you've got to be talking to them about other things. Things like, is the Bible really the Word of God? That's what the Bible claims of itself. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It says in 2 Peter 2, 20 and 21, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, we need to teach them why they can believe in the Bible. Not just, you believe the Bible. God said it, it's right here in the Word. Look, it's right here. So you just obey it. No, no, that's out, man. It's not going to work anymore. Now we have to teach them why they can have confidence in God's Word. Now, there's a lot of resources out there, but we do stuff like that here at Florida Bible. I did a series a while back called The Bible, God's Word or Man's Myth. talks all about why we can have confidence that the Bible is God's Word and not just something that mankind made up. Another important question is, is the question that says, is Jesus really the only way? Now, do you know that Christianity receives more attacks from postmodernists than any other world religion? And why? Because of this. Because we believe Jesus when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. That flies directly in the face of postmodernism. That is the epitome from their vantage point of intolerance. How can you say that? You Christians got the only way to get there. And boy, I'll tell you, with all these voices, we kind of back down. We go, well, you know, I don't want to be insensitive. I don't want to be unkind. I don't, I don't want to reject that person's faith or that person's faith. Hey, listen, if people are really going to one or two places in eternity and there really only is one way, are we being more loving and sensitive to not raise that challenge in their life? Are we being more loving and sensitive to be honest with them? But how do we defend that? Well, I did a whole other series here. Is Jesus the only way? Now, here's what I'm not suggesting, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle, that you get my tape series or you get those books and you sit down with your six-year-old and say, listen to Pastor Pete's sermon. Nor am I telling you, you'll get the book and, and throw it in the kid's lap and say, here, read this book. Now, what I'm saying is you use these resources. You use them to educate yourself. You use them so that you can ask the appropriate questions in such a way that helps your children understand the value of God's Word. Understand why Jesus made the claim that he did. And why it's not just some blind faith thing that we Christians just kind of cling to as a crutch, but why there's substance to those beliefs. And at a very young age, now you've got to, of course, do it to their level of understanding. But 
we begin to what constantly, repetitively do it. So that we're not waiting until they're 16 years old and come home and all of a sudden they're all messed up with this culture and now we're trying to correct it. Now we're on an uphill battle. Got to go deeper. Finally, we got to validate Christianity. We got to validate Christianity. I'm a Christian. I'm proud that I'm a Christian. I'm glad that I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed of being a Christian. I'm not intimidated by postmodernism. I'm not intimidated if you don't think there's any absolute truth. That doesn't bother me. I'm not intimidated by pluralism or tolerance. I'm glad I'm a Christian. I'm proud to be a Christian. I happen to think that the Christian lifestyle is the greatest lifestyle on the planet Earth. Amen? Amen. Family Matter Blotter says this. Christianity does work. And those of us who embrace Christianity follow it. No, it does work. As the saying goes, the proof is in the pudding. So they say, let us show our kids that although there are other values they could hold and choose, none of them are more rewarding, more joyful, more fulfilling, more beautiful than a life centered around Jesus Christ. Let's make them proud of their Christian heritage. Not something they feel like they've got to hide and, and not talk about because, because I don't want to offend anybody. And I don't, and yet, let's teach them why Christianity is the best lifestyle. Now, there's a lot of things we can do to teach them that. But, you know, so much of what Jesus taught us about life and about relating to each other fulfills the modern cultural goals. One of the big things in this modern postmodern culture is this idea of universal love and acceptance. Let's quit fighting. Let's just love each other. Let's, let's treat each other with sensitivity and respect. Jesus taught us that 2,000 years ago. That's nothing new. That's what Christianity, that's the foundation of Christianity, of our lifestyle. After trusting Christ as our Savior, that's the foundation of our faith. But Jesus said in John 13, 34 through 35, a new command I give you, love one another. And the other command was love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. Then he says, and another one I give you, and that's love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Look what he says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. See, that's one of the reasons people ought to love Christianity is because we are very loving. We are very accepting because that's the tenet of our faith. And that's the second commandment that we're supposed to embrace as Christians. The idea of, of women's rights. It's big in the culture. We've talked about the feminist movement and the impact that it's had in culture and where a lot of the collusion comes from. But you know what? If you really examine Christianity, you will discover that the Christian faith has been the biggest friend of women's rights of any other force on planet Earth in history. In fact, up until Christianity said things like Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Many world religions and philosophical opinions of life, and there are many contemporary that still exist today, openly acknowledge that husbands have the right to beat their wives if they're acting in, in a way that is disobedient to their husbands. They're still faced today that will teach you. You have the right to beat your wife. Christianity is the one that came out and says, no, 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 no. no. Husbands, you don't do that. Husbands, you love your wives. 
and you don't treat them harshly. Your response to them is sacrificial love. It's all dive of elevating women in society. Well, even back under Judaism in Jesus' day, women didn't have societal rights. Under Rome, they didn't have societal rights. Under Greece, they didn't have societal rights. Under Egypt, they didn't have societal rights. It was all a male-dominant, male-endorsed society. Women, even in worship and Judaism, they weren't allowed to, to sit like this in a congregation today. Women had to be up in a balcony where there was lattice work around. They weren't allowed to, to sit in the main assembly. They had to sit off to the sides, out in the courts or up in the balcony. The men, the worship was for the men. See, so as Christianity said, no, that's not true anymore. Acts 2.18, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. See, God says, no, 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 you don't understand. I value men and I value women equally. One of the, another aspect of modern culture is this almost hyper interest and care in the misfortune, the homeless and the, the starving around the world and the uneducated. That, that, that is why that, that kind of movement is just growing by leaps and bounds today. But again, nothing new to Christians. That's what we've been instructed to do from the beginning. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 25, 37 through 40, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in a prison and go visit you? See, they're, they're responding to a challenge on the day of judgment, on the day of rewards. And, and, and God, Jesus Christ, is rewarding them. And he says, I'm going to reward you because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. And, and now the righteous said, no, whoa, 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 whoa. When, when did we do that? And look what he said. He says, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these of my brothers of mine, you did for me. In other words, what I do for the homeless person, what I do for the person across the seas, to help them have an education, to have clean water. When I go and visit the prisons, when I go to the hospital, when I go to the rest homes, whenever I reach out and I touch somebody else's life with an act and a hand of compassion, Jesus said, you've done that for me. See, that's what Christianity is all about. Now, the fact that we don't always do that doesn't mean that that's not what we are challenged to do. The whole idea of inclusiveness is so huge to the young generation and in the young culture. This idea of equality. In fact, if you marginalize any race, or you marginalize anyone because of a, 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 of a physical handicap or anything like that, they will side against you in a second. But that's exactly what Christianity has always taught us not to do. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, Christianity was on the cutting edge before there was a cutting edge. We were already doing the stuff that, that society took 2,000 years to find value in. Jesus told us from the beginning. That's what life is about. It's not about satisfying self. It's about reaching out to others. We need to teach our children that with pride they can declare to their friends and their teachers, 
I'm a Christian. And being a Christian is cool. Being a Christian is great. Being a Christian means being loving and sensitive. Being caring. The Bible in Galatians chapter 5 describes the fruits of the flesh. And then it describes the fruits of the Spirit, which is love and joy and patience and mercy and gentleness and self-control. And it follows the fruits of the spirits by saying, against these things there's no law. There's no philosophy, there's no culture against loving and being generous and patient and forgiving. Those are all elements that whatever culture out there would readily embrace. And Christianity has been proposing that for 2,000 years now. Every day, culture is colliding with who God has made us to be and who God has called us to be. And Christians, church, we need to accept a call to arms today. If our families are going to survive into future generations the attack on the Bible, the attack on God, the attack on a biblical worldview. We better reconnect. We better wake up. We better wise up. We better go deeper. We better get involved. Romans thirteen twelve says, and do this, understanding the present time. And that's what we're talking about, understanding our present time here. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, what's all that mean? Here's what it means. It means that we need to wake up. And we need not to get swept along with this current of modern philosophy and culture. Why? It says our salvation is nearer now than when it first began. What does that mean? That means Jesus is coming. And he's coming sooner than later. And all this chaos that we experience in life is about to end. Now, I don't know the exact day. I don't know the exact hour. We're going to talk about it the first of the year. The first series of 2012 is going to be 2012. Is this the end? Because that's what everyone's thinking. So is it? But listen, the end is coming. And Paul is encouraging, even then, the church at Rome, wake up, because it's coming fast. And we only have so much time to reach our children, to reach our neighbors, to reach our family, to reach our friends, to reach our co-workers, and we're not going to do it just coasting through life. It's going to get messy, but God called us to live a messy life. Not a comfortable life, because he's going to give us that for all eternity. I'll take that for eternity and, and get messy for about 70 years. How about you? Huh? That's a pretty... I'll take that as odds. How about you, Brett? I'll take messy for 70 years and eternity for happy and without... tears wipe away from my eyes and all that kind of stuff. That's good for me. It's good for you too, isn't it? Time to wake up. Church, it's time for us to stand up. Mom and dad, it's time for us to assume our biblical role. 
It's time for us to make a difference in the lives of our children, not as seemingly some kind of religious zealot fanatics, but as people who really understand what we believe and live what we believe and demonstrate to our children what a blessing it is to do it. Let's bow our heads. Lord, help us to do that. I pray for your protection over families today. God, I pray for your, your wisdom to be showered upon moms and dads here today and upon grandmas and grandpas and upon uncles and aunts. God, the culture that we live in is especially hostile towards we who are believers in Jesus Christ. They are especially aggressive against those of us who want to conform our lives to your word, to that orthodox position of steadfastness that expands beyond time and space. And so, Lord, if we choose to follow you, life is going to be messy. But that's okay. Let we who are parents and grandparents, let us take the messiness so that we can help our children and grandchildren to have a life that maybe is a little less messy. Let us lovingly engage them and help them understand why you are the way, the truth, and the life and why there's no other lifestyle that will ever fulfill us than the lifestyle that you have prescribed to us in your word. Wake us up. Wise us up. Help us to get real. Help us to go deeper. In Jesus' name, amen.